you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Um, if you are familiar with Matthew 23, uh, you'll know that it is a difficult text to read. I don't think any of us like to hear about the sin of others. I'm reminded that for most of us, even when the guilty are being judged, we find ourselves uh, heavy-hearted. It may be because that we identify with them. Uh, but we just, most of us, most people, find themselves in a place of uneasiness whenever they hear a litany of the wrongs and the sin of others. Now remember the setting is Jerusalem. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He knows that before weeks end, He'll be arrested and crucified. No one else knew this, even though He had shared these very things with His disciples. Remember in chapter 21, He made His entrance into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It was the manner in which a king would enter a royal city. We read and discovered that there was a great following. The crowds followed him and ran before him, laying their cloaks uh, and even palm branches in his path. They were showing honor to the king. They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, these are powerful and meaningful words of confession. Because he was the promised son of David. And in fact, he had come in the name of the Lord. But by week's end, this one who had come in the name of the Lord would be tortured on a cross on a hill outside of his city. But the day he arrived, he immediately went into the temple. And there the excitement of the entrance turned from one of celebration, you know, to one of confrontation. And he was the one who initiated the confrontation. It all erupted there in the temple, in the chaos, as he drove out the merchants and the money changers. You know, this wasn't the first time uh, that this had occurred. John recorded uh, that a similar incident happened on his very first Passover of his earthly ministry, some two or maybe three years prior to this. But it didn't end there, because in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 18, uh, we hear that the chief priests and scribes were indignant. The next day in the temple resulted in tensions being raised to another level. That day Jesus told a parable which he spoke of a group of tenant farmers who refused to give the owner of the vineyard the agreed upon amount or portion of their crops produced. And then they killed the owner's servants and even his son when he sent them hoping that they would be able to get them to give what they owed. And then Jesus posed this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And the people responded rightly. He said, well, he'll kill them and, and then allow faithful tenants to come and work his vineyard. And then he then explained the parable with this statement. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to the people producing fruit. And that day, the chief priests and Pharisees perceived that he was speaking of them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The next day, Wednesday, Jesus was back in the temple and each group made their way to take a run at him. They were going to try to trap him. They asked him questions trying to discredit him and in some way catch him in a place where there would be inconsistency in some way whether it be toward the Jews or toward the Romans. The Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians to take a shot at him. And we looked at that last week and they failed in their attempt. The Sadducees took their turn only to be told by Jesus that they knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then the lawyer came. The lawyer came to test him as the others did, and he failed. And then Jesus posed a question to the Pharisees. And here was the question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he knew they would answer correctly. They knew the answer. He was the son of David, and that's what they said. And then he pointed them to the fact that while they knew the right answer, they failed to see what David himself had said about his son. 
They failed to see that David prophesied that he was more than and would be more than a man, that he would be the Lord. And then we read this and we ended and concluded there last week. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask any more questions. And then Matthew records what happened next. Jesus' last public address. I want you to catch this. We're looking today at Jesus' last public address. He'll continue to teach, but He'll teach in small groups. He'll teach His disciples. But publicly in the temple, with the people gathered around Him, and the Pharisees, and all of those who had just come to Him, trying to trap Him, Jesus addresses. It was His last public address. I want you to look at it this morning. And I believe it can be divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 12, Jesus cautions the people and His disciples. Beginning in verse 13 and through verse 36, we see Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. And then in verses 37 through 39, we see the compassion of Jesus as He looks out over Jerusalem. Let's look at it in that manner. Look at verses 1 through 12, chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is Jesus' word of caution to the disciples. He said, listen to the Pharisees inasmuch as they speak God's word. But don't do what they do. Or maybe another way that he was expressing, he says, do not look at their lives and actions and let them serve as a model for yours. And he tells them why. And I want us to look at these reasons. The first reason he gives is that they sit in the seat of Moses taking on that place of representing them before God. They are self-appointed, in other words, but they don't care for you. They don't advocate for you. They make, their, they make things difficult for you, but they never help you in carrying out the things they prescribe. In other words, they want you to fail, not succeed. Now, why do you suppose this is so significant? Well, let's look over in Exodus chapter 32 and we'll see how Moses sat on that seat. Turn over to Exodus chapter 32. Moses has been on the mountain, received the law from God. He makes his way down the mountain. In verse 11, back up in verse 10, as they're coming down the mountain, Moses realizes in God, in fact, in verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In other words, they were already breaking the law before Moses could ever get to the bottom of the mountain to give them the law. He says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may be burned hot against them, and that I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore uh, by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. What had Moses done? Well, Moses had sought to intercede for them in an effort to help the people. Jesus was pointing to the fact that they sat on the seat of Moses as the judge and representative of God, one that was supposed to deliver the law to them, one that was supposed to help them in keeping the law, one that was supposed to encourage them, and even in Moses' case, he interceded on their behalf because he cared for the people. Jesus pointed to the fact that they were more interested in drawing a distinction between themselves and the people than identifying with the people and interceding for them. Notice the second reason that Jesus gives for not following the example set by the Pharisees is that they only do what they do to be recognized by the people. Notice what he says there. Uh, He says, In verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, meaning that there were these little boxes with a copy of the law that they either put on their foreheads or they had it strapped to their arms, but they made them big so that everyone would notice that they had a big phylactery, meaning that they were all about the law, that they were keeping the law, and they were doing it so that people would look at them and to see Their righteousness. That's what they were doing. It was customary for them to have fringes on the bottom of their their garment. And they made sure that they were long and that those fringes were really, really long so that everyone would know that they were righteous. He says they do all these deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they wanted to be recognized for who they were, these Pharisees, these keepers of the law. And they loved being called rabbi by others. And then Jesus goes on to say, but you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Jesus said that they were doing what they were doing to be seen by others. The Pharisees saw themselves as self-sufficient. Isn't it interesting how self-sufficiency also creates a need for the approval of others? Have you ever noticed that in people? Notice again that they placed themselves in the seat of Moses. They were self-appointed judges, if you will. The problem was is that they were the standard, not the law of God. God Himself wasn't the standard. The standard, mind you, that no one could keep. They were holding themselves up before the people as if they were the keepers of the law. Not only the keepers and protector of the law in the sense that they were trying to hold true to the law and present it to the people, but that they were the only ones who could keep the law. They wanted the titles. They wanted the position. They wanted the authority. They wanted their righteousness to be recognized. And they wanted to be honored for it. Notice Jesus' response to that. Look in verses 6 through 10 again. And they loved their places of honor. And at the end of that, he said, Neither were they to be called instructors, nor have they only had one instructor, and that is Christ. Now don't get confused here. Jesus is not saying that a teacher shouldn't be called a teacher. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that a a father should not be called father by their children. That's not his point. His point is, is don't follow their practice of wanting titles and positions for the purpose of being honored by men. And then Jesus went on to expose the Pharisees' real problem. What was it? Notice what he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to think about this for a minute. The issue is their prideful heart. It's interesting. 
we would think that the opposite of hypocrisy would be what? Consistency. Isn't that what a hypocrite is? Someone who says one thing and does another. In other words, their actions are inconsistent with their speech. So certainly the opposite of that would be what? Would be consistency. That their speech and their actions would be consistent. But that's not how Jesus pairs it up. Notice how He pairs it up. He says their issue is that of pride. The greatest among you shall be your servant. They didn't seek to be served. They longed to be masters. And then whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's a caution here. Notice, Jesus is cautioning. And I was looking at this text this week. And I began to ask myself these questions. And, and, and maybe the text will cause you to look at it this way. You know, it's easy to get caught up in these texts where the finger is being pointed at someone else and we may be rooting Jesus on here because of all that He has faced among them. But the point of the text here when Matthew is given this record and the point of the Holy Spirit is to tell things like they were and like they happened, but it is the point to us, if it's a caution to the disciples to say, don't follow them and their actions, it's also a caution for us, is make sure that these are not the actions of our lives. I ask myself, am I more concerned with what people think of me than what God thinks of me? Think about that for a moment. Of course, I'm reminded that any believer should be concerned about his or her witness and testimony. Certainly that's true. But in the crevices and folds of our hearts are our desires more to please men and earn their approval or to please God. I ask myself, am I seeking the approval of men? I'd ask believers here today, is that what you are seeking? Are you seeking the approval of men or are you seeking the approval of of God. Do you do what you do to be seen and recognized by others? The second question that I had to ask myself is do I judge people by my life and the way that I live it? By my standards. Do I sum people up in that way as if to say, well they're not doing what I'm doing. They ought to be doing it the way that I'm doing it. They ought to be thinking about it the way that I'm thinking about it. You know, we often don't say those things, but we will often judge people in that way. We judge them that way in our hearts, don't we? We look at our lives and somehow or another we see that we are more righteous seemingly than someone else. The third question I ask is, are there ways that I can be a servant rather than a master? Can I in humility serve rather than demand to be served? I was reminded that Christ came to serve, not to be served. And in that service, He became a ransom for many. And, and, and I can't ransom, I can't ransom anyone, I can't save anyone, but I can serve. And how can I do that more? The fourth question I asked is, is my service driven to point people to God and praise Him or is it to draw people to me? That's a real question. You say, well, no one does that. Is that so? Is that really true? Booney and I were talking earlier. Seems as if, in a lot of ways, the American church is about drawing people to men and not pointing people to God. Don't we see that with these big personalities? I'm reminded of that even when we see the staging and the placement of things on a platform. Is the pulpit in the center? Or is it the platform for the drummer? Or for the person playing the guitar? Where is the lights focused? Where are the lights focused? 
And I'm not saying that to be critical. I am just saying that in the course of all that we do, is it to point people to the glory of God and to praise Him and to push, push people's attention to God and not to man? You know, the people and the disciples were being cautioned not to follow the Pharisees for these reasons. And thus, not to be that themselves. We're, not, we're being cautioned not to be caught up in this prideful scheme. Now to those of you who have not yet trusted Christ, there's a caution here for you as well. And you'll hear along as we continue to deal with the text this morning, nothing about you is self-sufficient. Believer, nothing about you is self-sufficient. Unbeliever, nothing about you is self-sufficient. You can't decide to become sufficient or even proficient in keeping God's law and somehow hoping that He will see you and recognize you and find favor in you. You can't do that. You're not able. You're not able. Christ alone is sufficient for your living. Now, Christ alone is sufficient for your life in eternity. We read it in our assurance of pardon. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God is highly, has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted all of this led to the condemnation of the pharisees this is heavy and weighted now remember before we read this jesus is likely still there in the temple here is the son of god in the temple in the city of God, His city, in the temple, in the very structure that represented the place of God's presence. He's the one that has been sent by God. He's been sent to execute the very act that would bring salvation to save His people. He now assumes the seat of Moses. They were self-appointed to that place. Now He sits on the seat of Moses. He is the one now who is going to judge. And rightfully so. And he renders verdict. And he passes judgment on the Pharisees. He passes on to them seven judgments. And six of the seven times, he openly speaks to them and calls them hypocrites. I want you to get this. His last public address Let's see why he does that. Let's look in verse 13. But woe. In other words, this is your judgment. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What are they being judged for? What are they being judged for? Being stumbling blocks of people coming to see God. What does Jesus say? He says, their teaching points people to themselves, not to God. For their praise, not the praise of God. And by virtue of that, they are shutting the doors of the kingdom to the people who should be being pointed to God. The second reason, notice in verse 15. Woe, you scribes and Pharisees. In other words, judging you, hypocrites. 
For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They go to extreme lengths to make people like themselves. In other words, they didn't lack zeal for reaching the people. In fact, they would put their life in harm's way. One commentator says it this way, that when you mention the sea and you mention a Jew in Palestine during that day, the two didn't go together. You had fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, but when it got time to sail across the Mediterranean, you didn't see many Jews hopping on a boat to go that way. In fact, he said it was why Paul's ventures and journeys own ships were so incredible and it proved to be so what did Paul almost always wind up in when he got on a boat a storm a storm that would take life they were afraid of the ocean they were they were not seagoing people they were land goers they wanted the flat ground the point is is that the Pharisees were willing to sail across the oceans, even the Mediterranean, to make a proselyte, to make someone like themselves, to peddle their version of Judaism, to, to share and teach and to disciple toward the end, to make people like themselves. And what did Jesus say? He said, and they are twice as much a son of hell as you, which made them what? Sons of hell. Turn over with me to John chapter 8. You'll be reminded of this from our study of John. This isn't the first time been pointed to that. No. Look in John chapter 8 and look at verse 31. John chapter 8 and verse 31. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you will do as your father desires. He was a murderer. And I want you to hold on to this text. It, it, it bears witness in Matthew. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Sons of hell. Their father, the devil. And that was what Jesus said about them. Third, notice in verses 16 through 22. He said, Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if someone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears 
by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What was the point? The point is that they have failed to see God as supreme in all things. They were wiggling around with the law to create ways that they and others could ultimately be dishonest. Wasn't uncommon in the day for people to take oaths. And when they would take an oath, they would make that oath or they would swear, if you will, they would swear and make their oath by something. In other words, they would, uh, you know, in the... In, in all the movies that we see, they, they swear on what? Their mother's grave. That their mother's grave is so sacred. I swear it on my mother's grave or on my father's grave. Well, here they were swearing by things that were in the temple. Why? Because they understood that things in the temple were holy. But they had turned the law and twisted it that if you only swore by the altar, that wasn't enough. You had to swear by the sacrifice that was on the altar. And then, and then now my word, if you will, now my word is good. If I only swore by the altar, well, that really doesn't bind me. If I swore by the temple, it really doesn't bind me with failing to see that it wasn't the sacrifice that was sacred, that it was God who ultimately made the sacrifice sacred. And it was God who made the altar sacred. And it was God who made the temple sacred. And it was God who ultimately made everything in all of life sacred and holy. Or it was God who judged and damned all that wasn't holy. Fourth, look at what happens. In their effort to protect the law, they had become more concerned with adding to the law to ensure that they didn't fail the law rather than attend the heart of the law. Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and deal and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now the Pharisees were reminded that Israel had fallen under the judgment of God in years past. It's the reason that they were, there was a great deportation, taken into exile taken as prisoners, taken away from their homeland. The reason why their temple had been destroyed and still was even being under construction even then by the Roman government as there were still construction going on all the time of Jesus' life. Almost all the way up to the time of 70 AD. The point is, is that they were straining at a gnat, making up laws so that they could ensure the fact that they kept the law and the whole time they had missed the spirit of the law they wanted to ensure that israel did not fall under the judgment of god again because that they had failed in keeping the law what they failed to see was that the law was to point them to the glory of god it was to show them who god was it pointed to a relationship the law wasn't about rules and technicalities but about relationship. And here, they had gone above and beyond the law. The law never required them to tithe their spices. Think about it just a minute. Janice occasionally will buy little pots of mint and various things. And Can you imagine picking off all those little leaves and sorting them out to a tent and taking them? It's not quite the same as if you have a hundred bags of grain, you carry ten of them as an offering. No, here they were even parsing out their spices, straining at a gnat, all along failing to care for the people, failing to love the people, failing to be just in their work and judgment, failing in realizing 
that all of this was about a relationship with God. Looking to the law in some way to justify them. Looking to the law to make them righteous. And righteousness could not come by the law. Notice that Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, said, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in God, trusting in Him, believing in Him, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, by the works of the law, no one would ever become righteous. No one. Now I want you to notice the danger of these actions. All of these are dangerous things. Why? We become a danger to others when we preach a false gospel, which was what they were preaching. The gospel is the power of God to save. The whole reason to save. The whole reason that Paul was writing to the Galatians was because the other gospel The other gospel that they had embraced was a gospel that added the law to the gospel. He knew that it was dangerous. Why was it dangerous? It wouldn't save. Their lives and the people's lives were in danger, were at stake. The reason that we rehearse the truths of God's Word here every week, the reason we looked at sanctification this morning and our catechism, The reason that we deal with our confession and our assurance of pardon. The reason that we have our call to worship always pointing us to the glory of God and recognizing His goodness and our need to praise Him and to recognize those things are so that we understand that we are not sufficient, that we must rely on the work of Christ in Him and Him alone. Are we able to find the sufficiency for having a relationship with God? That's the reason we do it. Why? So that we would not be ignorant of that. So that we don't fall into this trap. And even so, that when we are sitting with our friends and our family, seeking to share with them and point them to the glory of God in Christ, we know what it is And what needs to be said and how we need to think and to work through that. Why? Because their lives are at stake. Our lives are at stake. That's the reason. I hope you listen and we listen to that every week. Because somewhere in the course of the week, we're going to encounter someone. If we are crossing paths with lost people, we're going to encounter people who need to hear the truth of God's Word. And listen, it is great to tell them that God loves them. It's great to say that Jesus loves you. It's great to say that that Christ is the answer. We must tell them why. And we must tell them how. Notice he goes on with his judgments. The fifth, notice. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and and the plate, that the outside also may become clean. What was their problem? Well, their problem was is they were seeking to be... They were outwardly conforming to the law and the whole time holding their greed and their self-indulgence on the inside of them. They were the ones that said, I won't let people see the sin out here, but I will harbor it in my heart. I will change my actions on the outside, but never deal with the issues of the heart. Look at the sixth. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What is is the condemnation here? They're being condemned 
that their righteousness is for others to see, but it is not genuine. What's the problem with all this? It's all deceiving. It's deceiving outwardly. They're being deceived inwardly. What's going on here? They're holding on to their sin in their heart. Jerusalem was full of tombs. A Jew couldn't pass by a tomb or come in contact with a tomb without being defiled and then unable to go to the temple. So you know what they did? They whitewashed them. Why did they whitewash them? To make sure that everybody saw them. So if I'm traveling down this path and there is this whitewashed tomb up here that I would not have known otherwise unless it was whitewashed, I could walk by it and become defiled. And all these tombs were around in the city of Jerusalem where people had been buried over the centuries. And when they knew that, we even find out that they even put up monuments for the dead prophets which served as symbols of their tombs. And they whitewashed them so that they could make sure that they avoided them. You see, they were always trying to avoid these things for the appearance of their own righteousness without ever giving attention to the heart. They were deceiving. They were dangerous and they were deceiving. But then notice in verse 29, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Say it. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets. In other words, they were acknowledging the fact that their ancestors had rejected God and His prophet and His word for them to repent. They were acknowledging that. But they said, if we had been there, that would not have happened. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you bear witness of that. Then he says this, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some of whom you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Listen to this. They become responsible for all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. He said, whom you, your fathers, and you are them whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You feel the heaviness of that? You feel the weight of it? What was he saying? He said, you're a murderer. What did he told him in John's Gospel? You are like your father, the devil, who is a deceiver and a murderer. What has he just said? He said, you are dangerous, you are deceptive, and you are murderers. You are damned for this, is what he's saying. He's standing within the temple, taking the seat of Moses, speaking in public, and he is calling the Pharisees, those who were known to be the most righteous, at least in the eyes of men, and he is damning them to hell for their rejection and their unbelief. Now catch this. He's saying all of this on Wednesday. And what will happen to him on Thursday evening? Yep, they'll come to the Garden of Gethsemane. There at the Mount of Olives. They will arrest Him. They will have their so-called trials where they will condemn 
the prophet that God has sent, the very Son of God, the landowner's Son, and they will kill Him. And He knows it. As hard as this is, this is so gracious. Why? Because in less than three days, all of that will take place. And then on the first day of the week, what will happen? They will be told of, and I am sure will go to verify for themselves in some way, an empty tomb of the son of David who was more than a man but who was God. Their actions led to their damnation. Look at verse 37. We have a caution from Jesus. We have a condemnation that comes from Jesus. What would you expect to come next? Something worse than condemnation, wouldn't you? It's just building and growing. But what do we see? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers the brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember what they were shouting on the day he came into Jerusalem? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Coming into Jerusalem to do the work necessary to save his people. And his last public address says, You will not see me again until you hear said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to his second coming. Begins on Monday and ends his public dress on Wednesday. And his final word is a word of condemnation, but revealing the compassion of his heart. He longs to see them repent and recognize him for who he is. Can I say today to believers, we can look ahead to the return of Christ. And in that know that He is coming again. And we can look to that end with hope and joy and deal with all that we have to deal with. This week has been a particularly difficult week for me. I have faced and struggled with spiritual battles that I have never faced before. Do you know what sustained me? Was a rehearsing in my mind, laying in bed at night, not able to sleep, heavy burden, seemingly as if hell were all around me, trying to break through, being reminded over and over again and rehearsing in my mind, reading the Psalms and praying and crying out to God for deliverance, remind me that Jesus is coming again and He will sustain me to my death or to that end where He returns. Unbeliever, hear this. If you've not yet trusted Christ, Hear these words as if Jesus is speaking over you. I have longed for you to hear and to come. He is coming again. Repent and turn 
to him. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge today and admit that we are insufficient. Insufficient to come to you, insufficient to get to you. We acknowledge today, God, that our unrighteousness, our sin, certainly would prevent us from even being able to approach you, even being able to want to approach you. Even those whose good conscience would say, I'm not good enough to be in the presence of God. And for the most rebellious who would not even want to be in your presence, we recognize that we're insufficient. God, today, remind us of the sufficiency of Christ. And how you have sent Him. And that He is our only hope for salvation that He suffered and bled and died that we might have life and in that, Father, be forgiven of our sins and have His righteousness poured out on us because we won't get it in the law. We can't get it in the law. We can't keep the law and we acknowledge that today. Oh God, save us and continue to hold us up and save us. Help us to see that today. Turn our hearts away from our self-sufficiency. Turn us away from harboring sin in our hearts. Turn us away from rejecting you. And in that, being equal to a murderer who would murder you and despise you and hate you. Turn our hearts to love you and accept you today. In Jesus' name, amen.